You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you where we are and where we're going today. We're in a quick two-week series called Prayer According to Jesus, uh, in which Mike uh, has graciously allowed uh, me to kind of have free reign, which is a scary thought, by the way. Uh, he, that's how good of a leader he is and how trustworthy he is of me. Uh, but he said, hey, go for it. Go whatever you need, whatever the Lord's impressing upon your heart. And Matthew 6 came to my mind. Uh, and so last week we began... This two-week series by looking at the posture of prayer, by looking at the words in which Jesus instructs us how not to pray. And basically what we said last week, if I'm going to give a minute recap, is we said that everybody prays, but not all prayers are equal. And this universal phenomenon is, is explained through the image of God, that we're all created as image bearers, and we have this longing, this desire to connect with the God that created us. And what Jesus does is he clears the horizon, so to speak. He says, hey, this is ways that you've seen prayer happen, and maybe this is the ways that you've been exposed to prayer, but this is how you should pray. And he gave us Two things, and, and he gave us prayer is not meaning, uh, not, a, not a, um, a search for recognition. He's not a, it's not about babbling, empty phrases. It's about going to the secret place, pouring out honestly before the Father, loving him. And we have a God, a Father, that is not a reluctant listener, but he knows what you need. And what great truth that we have a God that knows exactly what we need. And that is, that is a reason why we should pray. We're praying to a God that knows exactly what it is that you need. And so Jesus says, this is how you should pray today. And so we summed up what we said the posture of prayer was by this idea of dependence this idea of viewing ourselves as dependent and loving God supremely. And we said that the posture of prayer is keeping it simple, keeping it real, and keeping it up. Because if we miss the posture, we corrupt the practice. And so today, we get into the practice of prayer. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise your vocal cords for just a second. Is that Okay. Okay, so I, I mentioned how uh, familiar this passage is to a lot of us. And so what I want to do is I want to read this, the, the Lord's Prayer, and I want you to read it with me, okay? I want you to, that means you got to say it, all right? That means not just like in your head. I want you to say it, all right? So let's pray, or let's read it together. Is that okay? All right, so it starts with this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's stop there. Even in that familiar passage, a lot of you had that rhythm that I wasn't with. Did you feel that? Okay, I was like, I wasn't with your rhythm. But this is so familiar. This is probably one of the only passages that I've looked at and taught under or taught, tried to teach that I didn't have to like memorize as I went. I already had it memorized uh, from a long time ago. Uh, but I bet that if you memorize this, this short passage, this, this short prayer in another translation, I bet you had some reflex, right, of like, that's not, that's not the way it goes. Like, that's not what I learned it. Okay, Jesus, you got it off. All right, but, but I read something that I think that applies to this, this, uh, this idea of familiarity. Um, I bet some of you know that most of our human life is lived in autopilot. Okay, some of you are like, I got teenagers. Yeah, I know. They just, they're like zombies, all right? But I understand that so many actions that we make on a day-to-day basis that we don't really even think about. Like, think about the last time that you thought about walking. Like, you, you didn't think about that this morning unless your hip hurt, okay? Unless uh, the young people are like, I didn't think about it. But the older people are like, yeah, I thought about it. It's cold, okay? Uh, but some of you may, may think about all the times that you've driven home from work, right? And, and you don't even remember how many red lights you hit, okay? It's just like you got in the zone and you're just driving until you get home. Your daily routine of making coffee, tying your shoes, doing your hair is largely done in autopilot, and that's a good thing. If we had to think about everything that we, would, we had to do in the morning, we would be exhausted by the time we got here, right? But this can also hurt us, especially when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, because so many of us, as we were repeating that with our vocal cords, we kind of went into autopilot mode. We kind of went into just like, I know this. This, this babbling that we've, that we've done for, for, for so many times in, in my life, maybe before a football game where you're about to like, just like, in Jesus' name. Now let's go hit people. Like, they didn't, it doesn't even make sense, right? We just babble it and then we go, okay? But why, why is it so uh, hard to get past the autopilot of this text? Because this is a danger for us today. When we read these verses, they are so familiar. But here's my hope. My hope for today is that we could switch off the autopilot for just a moment. Switch off the, un- the, the familiar words in which we have just heard. Unfamiliarize ourselves with this text. Because I think on the other side of that, Jesus has something to teach us so profound about these words. So incredibly powerful. So reorienting that I hope that you see it today. So one of the things that we want to notice first is that when Jesus was asked how to pray, he doesn't just go into a teaching on prayer. He actually just starts praying. And this is, this is significant because when you think about this, you go and read about the people that made the greatest impact for the kingdom of God on this earth. You will see that they are prayerful people. And we saw this last week as we said that Jesus himself was a man of prayer. But remember the context. Who is he speaking to? His disciples are asking asking him how to pray. And these are men that are schooled in prayer. They, They are familiar with prayer. But they see something in Jesus that's different. That's different. 
And so what, what Jesus does, is, if we're going to take this at a 30,000-foot view to just to start, the Lord's Prayer is what Jesus prayed and how he prayed. Let's just start there. Of, of course, okay, we can ride this tension, okay? Should we pray this specifically verbatim every day? Yes, I believe that, and I hope that you will take that at the end of, the, uh, end of today. Yes. Should we use this as principles in how we pray, of a skeleton of how we pray? Yes. So, so what Martin Lord Jones said, and I love this quote, he says, the, the more I study this prayer, the more I believe that if only one used these phrases as our Lord intended them to be used, there is really nothing more to be said. Now, you may disagree with that. That's okay. But he goes on to say that this prayer is all-inclusive, the perfect summary containing all the principles of prayer we will ever need. And so here's what we don't mean, right? We don't mean that this prayer should be used, as we said before, for, for meaningless repetition, right? And some people go as far as to say, hey, we don't need to say this and repeat it in public worship because it's, it's not saying something from the heart. But let's just say this, that this prayer is a patterned prayer, but Jesus prayed this prayer. And here's what I believe, and this is going to guide the teaching for today. I believe that the Lord's Prayer is full of things that Jesus desires to have ingrained in us. It's full of things that Jesus desires to have ingrained in us. He's going to say this, if we want to distill it down, this is what your prayer life needs to look like. This is what you need to remind yourself of daily. We repeat this prayer. We use it as a model. We pray along these lines. One author called it, this is a good illustration, it's, it's called the handrail in which we pray, which we hold the handrail as we walk. We will constantly be reminded of things that Jesus wants us to remember when we're rooted in this prayer. And so the question is, what is he saying? What, what does it mean? So let's talk about the structure on the surface, this prayer is very simple. You could teach this. I'm trying to teach this to my five and seven-year-old. It's 31 words in the original language. It's broken up and organized in a way that logically flows. It's like Jesus wants us to remember it, right? Imagine that, Jesus being a really good teacher, right? It's, it's very, very simple, yet endlessly deep. And one glance, you can see that there's two tables of the prayer, if you're looking at it in your text. There's a beginning invocation, our Father in heaven. And then there's six or seven petitions throughout, depending on how you read the last one. But you should also notice that this prayer is not in the singular tense. This is something that we Westerners like to do. My bread, my forgiveness. But notice that it's plural. Our Father, our bread. Lead us. You see, this prayer orients us into two ways. Our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? This is the highest value that Jesus taught on earth. When you think about what we want to be about as a church, what that says over there, love God, love neighbor, this, we didn't make that up. Jesus is teaching this in Matthew 22. 
It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So think about this for just a second. If this is Jesus' highest value, wouldn't it make sense that he would want us to pray in this way as well? Tim Mackey says it this way, the Lord's Prayer condenses Jesus' movement. It reflects what we need to bring to mind when we pray. So the Lord's Prayer is actually structured using Jesus' highest value of loving God and loving neighbor. And when you start to see it through that lens, it actually changes your prayer life a whole lot. It moves it from this mumble from this thing that's very familiar to something that's alive and active in your life and the people around you. So we know the structure, but what does it say? Okay, the first words that we read in the Lord's Prayer are what? Our Father. Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer by orienting us to who it is we're talking to and our relationship to him. You see, we think, again, the familiarity of this. We can, all, we can sometimes approach this prayer and just be like, dear God. <laughs> it's just not what he's saying. He's, this is actually mind-blowing to the disciples. When they heard Jesus say, our Father, they likely gasp. They knew Yahweh. They, knew, they were schooled in the God of Exodus, animal sacrifice, pillar of smoke, and fire, and temple. But here is what Jesus came to do, and it begins in the Lord's Prayer. He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him, and you have seen him. What, what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus, me, not me, Jesus, came to reveal the Father perfectly. Everything you see Jesus doing, the Father would do also. So when you see him moving towards the outcast and the weak and the adulterer and the liars, that's exactly the heart of the Father. When you see him bring compassion to people and weep over sin, that's the heart of the Father. But Jesus not only reveals the Father, he actually reconciles us to the Father through his own death. That, that's why he came to earth. When Jesus says, our Father, what he's actually saying is, I came to reconcile you to my Father. He's passing along his own priceless relationship to God. This is what we looked at in Galatians. I actually preached on this in Galatians chapter 4. Our adoption as sons is the baseline, the baseline for our relationship, that God is not just putting up with you. He loves you. And this is why I said last week that the first act of prayer is letting yourself be loved by God because this is how Jesus starts. Jesus' first words is a realignment, think about this, of who we are speaking to and who we are. Think about the songs we just sang. We sang about how ourselves, how we're changed, and we sang about how great God is. You see, it's, it's a rehashing. Our Father is a rehashing of our adoption, and we forget this, right? Jesus could have started with our King. 
Jesus could have started with our warrior. Jesus could have started with our protector, our provider. But he starts with our father. And this is the boundary for many of you. You don't pray because you don't see God as your father. We struggle to believe that we have this intimacy. Maybe we we don't understand that this is why Jesus took time and made it a priority to go to the Father because he knew he was loved. That he loves us and he longs to have a relationship with us. Tim Keller says it this way. Here's how you pray. You start with the doctrine of adoption. You must saturate yourself with the fact that you have been illegally, legally adopted by God's act, not by your act. That he is as committed to you as he is to his own natural son. So here, here's, where, here's where your mind may be going. Okay, we started talking about dads. Started talking about fathers. I don't have a good father. You know, I had this uh, teammate in college, uh, basketball team, and he would uh, always uh, address his father as sir. He would never call him dad. And I asked him one day, I was like, hey, like, why do you call him just like sir? Thank you, sir. Bye, sir. Because, you know, that's just our relationship. That's just who we are. But think about the words that Jesus gives us here. Our Father. Our Father. You know, in Matthew 7, just another chapter over, he has an answer to your question. He says this, You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for fish, do you... Give them a snake? Of course not. This is what Jesus says. So if you sinful people, notice he's calling maybe good fathers sinful people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? And so this next line, our father is in heaven, actually reorients our, our relationship with our father here. Because Jesus is saying, let's measure human fathers by the standards of our God. Our Father gives good gifts. Our Father is not going to deceive you. You know, one of the things that, uh, I should be vulnerable moment, is that okay? Um, Really bothers me is when I don't get sleep. All right? And as a parent, you get a lot of sleep right? It's just, that's just, you get so much of it. You're just always just like, yeah, I just can need, you know, I'm good on sleep. No, it's actually the opposite, right? And one of the things that uh, I saw uh, early in when I was a parent is it didn't, um, it didn't really hurt me as bad when it was my kid that was crying in the night. Now, before I lie to you all, it was still annoying, okay? But Tim Keller says this, The only person who dares to wake a king up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. That's the kind of intimate relationship that you have with the father. That he's ready and willing to listen. And it's because of your adoption. 
Jesus begins with our adoption, brings us into the presence of God as sons to a father that's above and beyond, yet close and intimate. And here's what this is. Our father stretches us to pray for others. It's not just my father. I can pray for my brothers and sisters who also maybe not feel the doctrine of adoption real well, and they can go, you know what, I'm going to pray for this person because they don't feel loved today. Our father... And every day we begin our prayer to redefine who we pray to because the second part of this is hallowed be your name. That's what we prayed through in our prayer focus today. It means to revere something. This is what hallowed means, to revere something, to make or keep holy. And so the question would be, why does Jesus say this? You know, is God just like glory hungry? Is he just like selfish? Is God's name not holy and we have to make it holy? But here's what we're trying to understand here. If, if our Father who is in heaven is a reminder of the intimacy that we have, the, his hollowness, his, his glory is a reminder of his separateness, right? If you went through the study of Exodus with us at our church, you, you've, you've seen maybe that one of the things that Yahweh repeated over and over is that his name, his name would be known. Who is, whose name? Yahweh. And what we see over and over is that Yahweh is this supreme being, this self-sufficient being. I am who I am. That's what he says. And what, and what the story of Exodus is what happens when there's rival little G gods rivaling the one true God. And he went to great, great lengths to reveal what? My name. My name will be remembered. My name will be glorified. We do not detract or add glory to God. What we sang does not add anything. It's not like God is like low, like he didn't have this glory bank account that gets, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. We just kind of add into it. No, no, no. What we're doing is recognizing it. We can live and think in such a way that we glory steal. And here's how this plays out for us. When you and I get in our closets, right, our secret place every single day, and we open our mouths and we begin to pray. This is Tyler Staten's quote. He says this, almost certainly another name is being hollowed in our hearts. Almost certainly. And he says the names of accomplishment, the name of success, productivity, approval from another person, Comfort, easy execution of our own plans, self-will and all of its destructive varieties. All of these names is something that's being hallowed in our own hearts. And we're tempted to hallow so many other things. And there's forces that speak against the truth about who our Father is. And when we pray, we say, hallowed be your name. We are praying the same prayer that Jesus prayed. Glorify yourself through me in John 17. We set you high and holy and central and important. Set right your reputation in the world. We give you what you already own. God is revered as holy when what? When we love him rightly. So love God with your heart, mind, and soul. Hallowed be your name. But... God is our Father, aligning ourselves with Him, yet He's transcendent, separate, and holy, and other. 
we know that this is not the truth for everybody in the world, right? We know this. It takes two seconds on any sort of social media, any news network, to know that the world is not right. People do not love him. People do not see him as father. People do not hollow his name. Something is off. And biblically, we would say that this is sin. But we, as the people of God, desire his name to be hollowed, but we are reminded this is not the case. So what Jesus asks as he begins his petition, your kingdom come. Your will be done. The kingdom is a huge, huge theme throughout the book of Matthew. It's mentioned over 40 times. And let me give you 60 seconds to help you with this. And, fun time, I brought some circles with me, okay, to help you, all right? Circles, right? It's an easy way to teach. Say it. You're supposed to say yes. All right. So we don't understand this story, right? We don't understand this story because the story begins with heaven and earth overlapping. God and man dwelling together. We, walk, we are walking with God. We are right with God. If you want to use the Lord's Prayer language, he is our father. We are hollowing his name perfectly. Okay? But that only lasts two chapters in the Bible. And some of you know, may know the story. We rebel against God, splitting the circles apart. Okay? And now there's this kind of overlap where we try to dwell with God, but there has to be some special circumstances in which that can happen. Because we are marked by sin, God is not. So we did not hollow his name. Heaven and earth were ripped apart, and we no longer dwell with him. So this is, this is why we have all this sin in the world. This is why we, everyone would agree something is off. But here's where the story kind of splinters and we misunderstand sometimes. We think that the story of the Bible is about Jesus coming to earth to bring us back to heaven. But the reality of the biblical story is Jesus coming to bring heaven with him. So when we pray, what we're praying is that heaven and earth would overlap mirroring Jesus' work on earth. And so what the end of the story is, if you go to that next slide, the end of the story is back where it begins. That we will walk with God, dwell with God, but he doesn't abandon his creation. He restores his creation, restores humanity back with him. Now, why does this matter? It's because it's the kingdom language that Jesus is using. When he says, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are praying that God's rule and reign would be his will for his creation. We're praying about something that will, by his promises, happen. And here's what's even crazier. We get to take part in that. We pray for that and we act. So when we reflect Jesus, what are we doing? Through our kindness, through our forgiveness, through our generosity, when we grieve with those who are grieving, when we're compassionate, we're bringing the kingdom of heaven into earth. You feel that? And what prayer is, prayer is the means by which we push back the curse that's infected the world and infected us. So every day you pray, kingdom come in my home, in my community, in my kids, in my church, in yourself. Your will be done, not mine. 
we were praying through this in this little kid's book. It's awesome. It has a, it's, a, it's called The Lord's Prayer, and it's, it's, it's based around this fat cat, okay? And you've got to find the fat cat while you're praying the Lord's Prayer. It's awesome. Just, just go with it, okay? And so when we were praying through it this week, uh, m- uh, my five-year-old said, my will be done. No, I said, baby, that's a thy will be done. She said, I like my. <laughs> you see, that, that's kind of how we are naturally, right? And this goes into our unanswered prayer. When we're praying in our own power, in our own way, we can often pray, my will be done with a little Jesus on top. But think about where we've gone so far. Our Father in heaven, intimacy, hallowed be your name. Way beyond. Your kingdom come. It is a totally holy realignment, a proper priority in our lives. I'm adopted. I can ask anything. But my father is just not some other father. His way is right. His way is holy. His way is good. And man, do I want this for the world. Do I want people to see God as their father, as Jesus reigning, as his kingdom is good? So here's a really convicting question. If God gave you everything you've prayed for in the last week, what would happen? What are we doing with the authority that Jesus says, This is your prayer. If we really took Jesus seriously on the invitation to prayer, what would happen? What would happen in you? What would happen in our community? What would happen in our city? See, we participate in this by bringing a little bit of heaven here now, by reflecting our Savior in anticipation for a time when the kingdom will be fully realized and his will will always be done forever and heaven and earth will be inseparable. You see, the beginning of this prayer, this first table, pulls us into the great reality of heaven. It shows us our true priority, releasing control to love God supremely. But notice how it shifts into petition, right? If the second table is full, if the first table is full of yours, the second table is full, full of us and our and we. And guys, let's just notice this. It goes from the highest of highs, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, to daily bread. It, it goes so small. It, it, it's almost like jarring. And this is where so many of us get hung up on prayer. It's the asking part. But prayer at its simplest is most straightforward, is asking God for help. If the Lord's Prayer teaches us anything, it's that. But notice the centering on what the first table brings us. Who is God? Our Father. What should we ask for? His will. And so when we ask for things that are in alignment with his will, and apparently you know what's in his will, daily bread. Daily bread. You know, I thought about this this week, and I was thinking, you know, like, doesn't God have bigger things to do? But Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. 
So back in Exodus, do you remember a story in which people had to depend upon God for their daily bread? It's the manna, right? The manna. This is, this is when the people were delivered from slavery, and every day they were giving, given manna, literally bread on the ground. The term manna literally means, what is it? it it's this, how did this get here? And, and God takes them through this test to create a dependence upon him, a trust. And I believe this has lost its power for a lot of us because we don't have to pray for daily bread. And I'm not just talking about food. One of the key storylines through our culture is what? Earn it yourself. Climb the ladder. Be self-sufficient. Do you realize what Jesus is telling you to pray for? The opposite of that. Every day, give us this daily bread. He wants to ingrain within us that it's okay to pray for the smallest, most basic needs. That we view each day with basic provision as a gift from God. And what Jesus does is he does this. He says, a prayer for daily bread replaces control with trust. With trust. You know what happened when the people of God tried to hoard the bread. They said, I just need one more extra day. Just, I'm, just the sixth and the seventh day will be good. It, it spoiled. It couldn't eat it. It was gross. But notice this. Remember the, the, the diaphragm. Love God. Love neighbor. It's us. Give us, this is a huge piece of the sentence because we quickly make this an individual need, don't we? Because this is the type of prayer that inspires generosity. You see, how often we forget to pray for the daily bread of our neighbors. We can often just say, you know what? I'm good. I'm content. Bank account is good. Got food in the pantry. We're all right. But how much of our prayers are directed to our daily bread? And what does this do? This forces us to get out of our individual thinking, to live connected and love our neighbor. This causes us to be connected to someone that says, you know what? They don't have the bread. So not only does Jesus instruct us to, uh, to, ask, us, to ask God to give us, but he says, forgive us. Forgive us. Debt is used here, right? But notice again the order I just have to point this out, that we aren't given provisions after we're forgiven. Hey, forgive me. Now give me stuff. He says, ask for bread. This is, this is the basis of our relationship with the Father, right? And what we're doing when we ask this is we're recognizing forgiveness. We're asking, we're recognizing that words, actions, thoughts that we do grieve the father, but also distort the relationship between our neighbor. You notice that? And we have a father who is ready and willing to forgive. And Jesus, through this teaching, is telling us that this is something that we should do often. Frederick Buchner said this, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything he doesn't already know. But we don't really like the qualifier behind this, do we? And we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, forgive, forgiveness for an individual person is great. But man, when it goes to the other person, 
Now, what we're saying is this. Let's nuance this out because we're not talking about, quote-unquote, reconciliation. We're talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness, biblically, is relinquishing our right to get even. That that is not yours. That is not your right to get even. Now, our world likes to say, don't get mad, get even. But what Jesus is saying is, like, you don't have to be besties. You don't have to, like, grab coffee every Tuesday. But if you're holding bitterness over a person, he goes to say in verses 14 and 15, this isn't karma. This is recognizing that the forgiveness that's been extended to you has not sunk in yet. Now, why would Jesus say this? Because if you go back to that circle with heaven and earth, at the middle of that is forgiveness. The cross is in the middle of that. And when we forgive as the people of God, I believe the one, one of the best apologetics for Christians is that we would be quick to forgive. That we wouldn't hold an account over someone's head. But we would be quick to forgive. And what forgiveness does is it spills out into the world that's desperate for it. It is a way to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And this, this leads us into this final petition where we're asked, lead us. Lead us. So he says, give us, for what we, give us what we need today. Forgive us for what we've done yesterday and lead us into the future. It's funny that this is last, right? Because we often most worry about our future. And when we ask this, what, what we have to say is, you know, like one of the questions that I get a lot of the time with this is, this, so does God lead us into temptation? Is this what God does? Well, the term here for temptation is kind of almost misleading. It, it's, it's kind of a hard word to translate because it, it's actually two words. It's testing is one and trap is the other. And, what, and testing is a huge theme throughout Scripture. But when you think of testing, I once again, my mind goes two places, the Exodus and Jesus' own testing. But what did God do in both of those things? When God tests his children, he's trying to get the result in more trust, in more dependence. But the opposite side of that is it shows what's really in here. So when the, the Israelites were brought out of slavery and they said, you have brought us here to die. We haven't drank water in three days. What is that revealing? It's revealing that they don't have trust. They don't have trust. And this test reveals what's going on. And here's what Jesus is teaching us. Life is going to, the circumstances of life are going to bring you into testings in which God is in your mind, is going to be put on trial. But God is faithful. Now are you going to be? Because here's, here's what it is. Father, don't let these tests become traps. Deliver me from these tests. They're going to come, but I pray they don't devour me. They don't eat me. I pray that I don't get sucked under because this, this term, this delivery is a violent term. It depicts a violent snatching. Maybe you picture a, a, a father or a mother that sees their child underwater that can't swim. What do they do? They don't stroll over there. 
they run and they snatch. This is the term for delivery. Jesus is saying, listen, tests will come. Temptations will come. But Father, when those come, lead me. Deliver me. Because there is an evil one who uses the test to assault God's character, and he's done it since Genesis 3. He's going to say, you know why you're in this test? Because God's not your father. He doesn't love you. You know why you're in this test? Is because God's not holy. He can't control the, the, the world. You know why you're in this test? Is because the kingdom of darkness is not is going to win. The kingdom of heaven is not. It, it, it's going to lose. You know why you're in this test? Because you've done something to deserve this, and he's not going to provide. That's what the evil one wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that you are your own hero. And here in these petitions, you have the physical needs, the mental needs, the spiritual needs. The body is remembered. The soul is remembered. The spirit is remembered. And ultimately, above all, the Father and adoration and holiness is at the foundation. So the Lord's Prayer is a holistic prayer for all of life, realigning us with who God is, what he wants, and what we ultimately need. This prayer is what Jesus wants to ingrain in us. Maybe like me and my five-year-old, your prayers are marked by my will, not thy will. This is not some relic from the past. This is not something that we mumble before an athletic event. This is a prayer for all of life. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed. And Jesus invites us into the highest value to love God and to love neighbor. Our posture is one of complete dependence. And here, Jesus gives us the practice. And so the way I want to end this is I want to practice. I want to practice. And so here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to get into a posture of prayer. What I mean by that is you've been sitting and staring at me for a little bit. I want you to move just a little bit and create a posture of prayer for yourself. Kind of realigning, going, I'm physically moving, and I'm going into a different mode here, mentally. Like I said, this prayer can be prayed verbatim every single day but can also be the handrails in which you, you yourself, walk up the steps with. And so if, if you, what I feel, I, I feel is necessary for posture uh, during the day or during the mornings when I pray, I usually have my hands out. Some days I'm driven to my knees. If you feel like you need to take that posture right now, we're not doing it for any recognition. This is your secret place. This is your closet. But let's begin. How would we do this on a daily basis? Our Father in heaven. Do we know him as Father? Do I need to realign my heart to know him as Father?
do I view him as a distant God or do I view him as an intimate dad that wants to speak with me? Adore him. Come to into his presence. The son of God has bought your way into his presence. You deserve to be there because of what Jesus has done for you. If you don't know the Father personally, maybe this is your prayer to start. God, I want to know you as God, as Father in my life. Hallowed be your name. We come into his presence hallowing so many other things. But we want to glorify God's name this morning in our prayers to say, you are God, you are separate, you are holy. We want to bring a right reputation to you. We're acknowledging that. This holy God beyond other is intimate. And we begin to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, bring heaven to earth. Use us as your image bearers to reflect you. Your will be done. Can you pray that? The reason why I hold my hands out in, my front, in the front be, is because it's a relinquishment. It's, it's a sign of dependence. It's neediness. Maybe you today, this morning, need to reach your hands out to front and say, it is your will, Father. I'm angry about something I'm holding on to it. No one knows about it, but I'm bringing it to you, and I am holding my hands out. Your will be done. What are you holding tightly? God, give us, forgive us, lead us. I'm thinking about things that we ask for, for, for the Father to give us. He starts with the small things. What are the small things that you can ask God for. I mean, silly things like my car just keeps not working, Father. <laughs> I'm really worried about the holidays. I don't know if we have enough money to make it. Man, my, my kid, my kid. <sighs> I'm, I'm worried about him. We rest in the provision, the manna that you give us day by day. Are you holding bitterness in your heart? You would claim that you've been forgiven by the Father, but you hold the right to get even above other people. What if you released your right today? What if you released your right to hold others accountable? That doesn't mean that the actions that they've done are not are lessened. That doesn't mean that the hurt that you're feeling is gone. It just means that you're extending forgiveness, the same forgiveness that the Father has extended to you. Are you worried about the future? Ask God to lead you through the testing, through the trial, that he would deliver you, that his plan is right, that his mercy will come to you at the exact moment that you need it. Deliver us from the evil one who wants to see this, see this God as someone who's unreliable, 
as someone who doesn't love you as a father, who sees grace as a thing to be earned, who sees provision as a thing to be um, dealt out shrewdly. You're a good father. So here's how we're going to end. Maybe you prayed some of those prayers, but maybe you need to, to stay in this time of response for just a moment longer. We're going we're gonna to sing. We're going to sing a great prayer. But if you need to stay seated for just a moment to continue praying with your hands out, kneeled, wherever, do that. Do it. We're going to respond to our Father in heaven. We're going to hallow his name because he gives us what we need. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.